Welcome to the podcast, Don't Forget Me, about the life and times of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Chapter 4. So again, going back to the, the music thing, it, it was just... It was one progression after another, and as it started, I, there was always there was always singing, mm-hmm. always singing. When I went here, the first thing I did when I went to school was join the choir. Mm-hmm. Met somebody that was musical, and we started singing, mm-hmm. and then it just progressed on and on. I have a couple of questions about what you just recounted, um, and you, by all means, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I, I do want to jump. In. Yeah, do it. Um, what form did the abuse? take in your family? Was it physical? Was it mental? It was, was it physical. It was, it, it was physical on my father's side and it was emotional on my mother's side. And, and, and you can answer the question looking to the other side of it yeah. to me. And it was, it was to the point where it really got, um, and I never knew that my brother was, was abused as much as I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we had talked about that a, a, a while and it got to the point where I think I was about um, almost 12 years old, and he started to hit me, and I, I was big at 12. Actually, I was about 5'8 when I was 13. So I literally pushed him against the wall, and I grabbed him around the throat, and I told him, if he ever touched me again, I'd kill him. And the abuse stopped. And that was it. That was it. Did you witness it with your, peer, with your sibling? Like, with your siblings? Did you see that? I never saw him beat my brother. But when I, but he did. I, I remember at one point, one a couple of times when he started, I jumped in in his defense. Mm-hmm. Then I became the bad guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I got the abuse because I was sick enough for him. Mm-hmm. He was, it was not not a good childhood to be mm-hmm. part of. Did that continue through your teen years as well? No, or, or stop no. When you were 13 no. Uh, as soon as I put him against the wall, that, gotcha. that, that it was over. You got but too did big the to be that. Abuse continue? No. Okay. No, no. And what form did it take with your mom? She, uh, God, the only time she gave us attention is when we were sick. Mm. And she used to play us off against each other, mm. my brother and I. We were both vying for my mother's attention. But my aunt said to me one day, she said, uh, when, you, when your brother was born, she, your mother dropped you like a hot potato. Mm. So much so that my aunt and uncle wanted to adopt me and take me away from that. And I said no. Why I said no, I don't know. But talking to my cousins about it, he said I didn't. You know, he had two other brothers. He said I didn't need a third brother, a, a third brother in the house. I didn't want you to come. So I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> but uh, and we're, you know, we're, we're still very close today with my cousins and my aunt Sheila, who's this. She's a surviving sister, uh, sister of all the sisters, and she's mm. 94 right now. Mm. Wow. Yeah. One of the things that you have to do when you're developing a story is you have to make you have to make a couple of interesting choices, and that is what are your comparables? I don't think they influence the writing, but they definitely influence the production side. And one of the most important stories I found is this story, it's set in 1962, called The Sandlot. The Sandlot to me captured a lot of the magical realism that I think should be incorporated into this story. Because to be able to go on tour 
in the 50s. You know, this story's right before that. I don't think people can picture how exciting that would be today. Today, with technology, we're, we're very close then. Pretty much anybody could, could sort of go on tour if they had an album of 12 songs. And you can, you can look at uh, musicians today and the way they develop on SoundCloud and the way they develop on YouTube, for instance. Some of the biggest stars of our time have been found through those mediums, and it wasn't like that in the 50s. Uh, you had to have some kind of spark. So I looked at the Sandlot, which is like a baseball story about these kids, and it has this underlying magical realism. Uh, I, I joke that, that I'm telling the story like the Princess Bride, but that's really true. That's what I was doing. One of the most important elements that I, I didn't want to skate over, but I don't know how to confront, and I think it would really be in the acting of of the story and the directing of the story is how do you deal with the abuse side and not make it a focal point? And it gets mentioned in, in the screenplay that we ended up with, but it doesn't, it doesn't get addressed in a way that I think does it justice. So I knew in the development of the story that was going to come in, into play. And I also knew that that would show up in the rewrite. I know you're smart, and I'm proud of you. I want you to make some friends this summer. Meet Scotty Smalls. Kyle, get it! The kid is a L7 weenie. My life is over. Man, this is baseball. You gotta stop thinking. You just have fun. Climb trees, hop fences, get into trouble. Just stand there and stick your glove out in the air. I'll take care of it. Now he's in. Yeah! All right! With the coolest guys in the neighborhood. They've got the look. Wendy Peppercorn. Wow. Hey, girls. They've got the moves. <laughs> They've got the rap. Blockhead. Geek. Jerk. Idiot. Moron. You bump for apples in the toilet. And you like it. You play ball like a girl. Something else has got their ball. That wasn't my ball! Dad's father gave it to him. Babe Ruth signed that ball. Babe Ruth! We gotta get that ball back. You got any bright ideas? Initiate retrieval section number one. Power connect. Come on, help me, it's heavy! Now! Twentieth Century Fox presents. Hey guys, it's the Sandlot Babies. You're the ones that are making all that racket. A lifetime of adventure. Come on, Squeeze, you can do it. Go through, bud. Little pervert. The Sandlot. A little piece of paradise, a half a block wide, and a whole season long. Scotty, have you made any friends yet? Oh, oh I'm sorry, Mom. I think that, I think that what Steve lived and what Steve survived is evident in 
in his exuberance in, in telling this story so many years later. And I think it's important. It's an important element. It becomes sort of uh, a complexity of the project to try and tell, try and tell the side of the story of how these kids managed to, to catch lightning in a bottle. And that lightning in a bottle actually comes with one main number. That main number is dance, dance, dance. And it, it, what, what is funny is that several years later, I was producing a, show, a rock and roll show where the Belmonts actually appeared mm-hmm. um, at Walton High School in the Bronx in the, in the uh, 70s. And who do I run into but Vito Pacone? Because he had a talent agency at the time, a booking agency. Sure. So I go into his office, and there sits Vito Pacone. I said, oh, my God, Vito. He says, yeah. He says, you, you have no idea how whenever I hear Little Star on the radio, I get nauseous and I turn it off. <laughs> he said, why? What do you have against the elegance? And I told him the story about Ivy Records. He knew nothing about this. He would, we were just laughing our heads off. <laughs> it's a great story. Now, you mentioned Dance, Dance, Dance. Why don't we uh, give a listen, then we'll talk about it. How's that? All right. All right. Let's give a listen. Here's uh, lead voice Scott Stevens with the Cavaliers and Dance, Dance, Dance. Scott Stevens, my very special guest, lead voice of the Cavaliers, and there you just heard Dance, 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 which was your, uh, well, first really uh, hit that made some noise for you, right? 
Yeah, actually, we were uh, number one in uh, New England. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started to actually we started to break in the Midwest and Cleveland area. And um, rumor has it that uh, you know we were supposed to we were supposed to appear on on bandstand, and we never got on. We never knew why. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, rumor has it that uh, in in the late fifties, uh, you had to be an all white or an all black group to get onto bandstand. And as a matter of fact, I remember when uh, you know, I, but I never really could could you know. I heard it from my managers and a couple of other people, but. I you know I never really looked into you know what kind of um, what you know what was going on with Bandstand in the fifties and it turned out when you know you can get anything you want to see on the internet right so I was doing a lot of research when I was writing the book and sure enough in the, in the fifties there was some trepidation in putting mixed groups on as a matter of fact when Frankie Lyman appeared on a Bandstand and they had the audacity. To dance with one of the one of the uh, girls in the audience who happened to be white, there was an uproar from the southern audience about that happening. And, no, I, um, I had heard so, that happened on Freed Show. No, I, I could be wrong on that. Maybe it was well, Bandstand. I, I thought it was Bandstand. Uh, that's, that's. I know it happened somewhere where he he did you know uh, pick a, a white uh, young lady to uh, dance with, and there was a big uh, to do about that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was Bandstand. When mm-hmm. I when I started to write the book, I found that a lot of things that I really wasn't sure of that, mm-hmm. you know, pop up. And uh, it was an interesting experience in just writing the book about this stuff. Oh, I'm sure. But Dance, 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 how did that come about? You wrote it, right? It's an original tune. I wrote it. Uh, actually, I wrote all the material. For the, all the songs of the group were written by me and all the other, most of the other songs that, that I even did as a single were all written by me. Right. Uh, however... Uh, even though they were written by me, the um, the owners of Ivy Records put their name as one of the co-writers on the on the songs. So immediately you gave up at least fifty percent of of your royalties. Um, but that's the way it was done in the fifties. You know, they, they either they changed that they put a note on there, or they just happened to uh, suggest uh, another way to do something. And now, how did uh, how did that get arranged? That particular tune, dance, dance, dance. Who arranged it for you, or did you do it? Well, I well, I would say uh, I don't remember who uh, the arranger was. Uh, I know that um, Weiss, uh, the guy that did uh, Wheel of Fortune, he wrote Wheel of Fortune. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, George Weiss, who was a um, a songwriter in the in the fifties. He was the staff writer for um, for Ivy Records. Mm-hmm. He was. The arranger, so I, I'm pretty sure he did the arrangements on 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 dance, dance, dance. But most of the arranging, you know, the parts for the group and the sound that the group, you know, I did all that. I was the one that you know came up with the background and 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 the and the vocal and and the words. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm I'm more of a poet songwriter. So you like the I lyric part of it? Yeah. I do the lyric, and somehow the the the, uh, the music just flows. And uh, but I need a tape recorder to be handy for me because I don't. I'm, I'm what we call a musical illiterate. Uh, I don't read or write music, uh, but so I'll have to write it down, and then hopefully I remember the uh, remember the tune, but it's, and get to a little tape recorder to put it on there, and then I give it to somebody else to put the sheet music out. I see. So you hear it in your head and. Put it down or a tape recorder, sing it to that tune and get somebody to actually uh, convert it into uh, notes and uh, so people yeah. can read it if you're yeah. a musician, right? 
Mm-hmm. Put a lead sheet in and uh, get it copyrighted and covered, and uh, and that's the way it is. And that's why I still do it today that way, the same way. All right. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you're still doing it. And Dance, Dance, Dance was – it comes up later in the story as far as like when it became uh, – when they became the Cavaliers, that's when Dance 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 happens. However, you have to tell it early to understand how big a deal it was that these kids went on the amateur hour and they suddenly had what was tantamount to a viral hit. They they were so close to becoming this big touring act. And there's a roadblock there. And that roadblock is one of the most interesting parts of the story. And we'll get to that. We're not, you know, that, that roadblock comes from, from them not really knowing that even though they've caused a lightning in a bottle, they, they don't understand that the world is not quite ready for Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. There's still civil rights is, on the brink of, of coming to this massive head in the United States, sort of in the middle of their story, but it's not quite there. You have to understand that from the eyes of children, because, because even though they are young men, they don't understand that the rest of the world and the people who could make them the biggest they could be are not ready for them. That completely escapes these kids who are doing nothing but performing their music. From Chapter 5 in White Boy, a rock and roll story, the community center, housed in the basement of the same building where they live, 1551 University Avenue, were both the public library and the community center. The director of the community center was Steve's lifeline to sanity. He would sit for hours with the director, Mrs. Catherine, in her office, sharing his life story with her and getting advice on how to cope with his hopes, his dreams, his goals, and his fears. The boys would rehearse at the center, mainly in the bathrooms because of the echo, surrounded by the smells and sounds totally unrelated to singing. There was a weight room for working out, a crafts room and a game room with ping pong tables, and a bumper pool table. The main room consisted of a large open space for parties and for dancing, and an enclosed counter where they sold refreshments and would set up record players to play the latest music. Steve would recite dedications that were given to him to read and then play the song that they had requested. When they wanted to show off songs or routines, they would sing at Friday night dances. When he wasn't singing, Steve was playing the DJ for all the popular songs of the 50s. His first singing partner, Steve Weil, his first crush, his first breakup, his first wife, his first hangover, his first beating at the hands of the Fordham Baldies gang, and his first taste of success all came in Sedgwick, in and around the community center. His apartment was 4C, and this turned out to be the same apartment that an African-American woman by the name of Eleanor Bumpers had lived in after they moved from 1551. She was killed in that apartment after allegedly trying to stab a policeman with a knife during an eviction attempt on October 29th of 1984. To this day, there are Facebook pages and other online forums dedicated to reunions being held by the kids who grew up in the Sedgwick Projects. Everyone who lived in the projects knew Steve, his brother, and his future wife Nancy, who was not from the nice crowd. When they got married in 1962, there was a mob scene in front of the building. The crowd was so large that they were given a police escort to their wedding reception. Here at the Brooklyn POE were Elvis Presley, private Elvis Presley, 
of the United States Army is uh, due to embark for Germany today. And let me tell you just a little of what the hubbub is like here. We've been, uh, as I say, waiting for the past two hours for uh, Presley to come in. There was some delay with his train. And he has just stepped off an elevator, which has brought him up from the lower level where many of his uh, fellow embarkees have been uh, preparing to go aboard the uh, General Randall, the ship that he will take over to Germany. Now Elvis moves over and is going to sit down behind the desk. The microphones will be brought in. More pictures will be taken. Elvis apparently enjoying the whole thing very much. He's been in smiles since he uh, walked into the room. Ma'am? What are your medals for? Uh, is it all right to stand up, yes, sir? sir. Uh, these medals right here, ma'am, are for uh, expert with a carbine rifle and also tank weapons. Also what? Tank weapon. Tank weapon. That's a 90-millimeter gun. Oh, excuse me. And this one right here I didn't do quite as well. This is a pistol. I got uh, a sharpshooter with it. Yes, sir, that's right. Do you speak any German at all? Do you speak any German, someone asks. Uh, no, ma'am, I don't. I probably have to in order to survive in Germany. <laughs> what is the A in your name stands for? Uh, Aaron. Gentleman over here. Uh, Elvis, what, what was the author of the book you were carrying to get off the train? Uh, I had just gotten the book, sir. I don't know. Somebody gave it to you as a gift. One of the boys gave it to me on the train. The, the, the title of the book was Poems That Touch the Heart. Did any of them touch your heart? Have you had a chance to read it? Uh, yes, ma'am. I, I read a couple of poems in it. I read one in particular called... Uh, uh, should you go first, which is a beautiful poem. Yes, ma'am, I do. Yes, no, by, whom this, by whom the poem was? The author was unknown in, in the poem. That's right. Elvis, is your dad going to Germany? Yes, ma'am, he is supposed to leave, I think, on the 26th. My grandmother and... Uh, one of the boys that, that that used to work for us is going to. Yes. Well, yes, sir. I'm I'm looking forward to it. In fact, uh, before I came in the army, we were planning a tour of Europe. Uh, I've never been out of the states except to Honolulu. And, uh, Rock and roll music is very big over in Europe, in Germany and, and uh, all over Europe. It's very big. Do they have uh, still very active groups that uh, you hear about even though you're in service? Yes, sir. Uh, uh, in fact, I, I think my fan club uh, my fan club has probably doubled. Since you've been in? Yes, sir. That's amazing. And, and the mail almost drove everybody crazy at Fort Hood. What happened to all that mail? Uh, it was all sent to Colonel Parker to be answered in Nashville. And what you got to say now? How many uh, family Well, sir, I suppose I get uh, probably 15,000 letters a week. 15,000 a week? Yes, sir. Do you expect to get a chance to uh, send over to Germany at all? Well, sir, I don't, uh, I don't know. I really don't. Yeah, okay. 
Actually, it's a pretty tough question. I, uh, so far, I've just been soldiering, and I've been doing very well at it. So I, I don't know exactly what they have planned for me. Yes, sir. To keep your career going while you're in the army, you might get sort of press conferences, uh, you know, as a paramount star and all that while you're in Europe. Uh, I would imagine that there will be quite a few people from the press over there. Uh, I really don't know. I, I, I don't know how it's going to be handled over there, you know. I was, at the time you entered the service, I think it was Colonel Parker who said that the federal government was going to lose money by taking him into the service, meaning, of course, income tax. Did you share that sentiment with him? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll put it like this. I paid a lot of income tax and all that. Uh, although the government has a lot of money, I hope. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'd be out of uniform, man. I can't take the head off. <laughs> no, I actually. Some of them wouldn't look good in print, sir. <laughs> uh, my favorite song is, is uh, a song called Padre. Are you familiar with it by Tony Arden? And also, uh, You'll Never Walk Alone was always one of my very favorites. Yes, ma'am, it definitely did. I knew my left leg from my right one. Did that cover garden Yes, ma'am, they gave me an old, uh, an old musket. One of the old rifles, you know, you had to pack the powder on the end of it. The they gave me, yeah, yes. I think it was a Civil War. Were, your family's been here a long time. Were any of your uh, ancestors in the Civil War or the Revolutionary War? Uh, let me see. <laughs> on which side? <laughs> on which side? Let's see. <laughs> About a year after the Cavaliers became a thing in 1958, I would be remiss if I did not get Elvis in here somewhere. It is so hard to get Elvis's music into like podcasting world. However, didn't need his music for this one. In September of 1958, Elvis is in Brooklyn because he's leaving for Germany. And that, I, I don't think, like, it, it's hard to express how much Steve likes Elvis Presley, but he works his way into one of the songs, and I had to have something of Elvis to really tie all of this together. Steve had attended Makeham's Junior High School in the Bronx and joined the choral group in his second year. He loved singing with them. His brother Jerry, three years younger than he, had joined the chorale. That's what they called it. They were always very competitive. And Steve says, if he can do it, so can I. Chorale was good for me. It brought me out of my shell. I began to have more self-confidence, and I enjoyed it performing in front of an audience. True to the era, Steve loved Elvis. Steve really loved Elvis. Before forming the Satellites, he would imitate him and learned all the songs from his first album. Hound Dog was the first song he performed at the community center, gyrations and all. One small tribute to Elvis can be heard on the Cavaliers' first release, Dance, Dance, Dance. When he says, I'm gonna, gonna, gonna do the bop. Uh-huh, 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 huh. The uh-huh, huh was for Elvis. 
Steve played the tenor sax in school and started playing the guitar. He was awful. He just couldn't learn to read music. His guitar playing was limited to chords and rhythm guitar, and that was as far as he went. The one thing that he did well was write poetry, and he thought that gave him an advantage when he needed to compose a new lyric in their songs. Thanks for joining us. This is Don't Forget Me, a podcast about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Music and words are adapted with the permission of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. We hope you'll continue with us on the rest of this limited series and musical adventure. Check the show notes to find out more about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers.